to a special edition of the CavsCorner.com podcast. CavsCorner.com, your source for Virginia sports. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com, coming to you live from the Pleasure Franklin Estates in the West End of Richmond, where uh, we're, we got a special guest on this week's show, as we do each year this at this time. Once the field is announced, we, we catch up with Patrick Stevens, a contributor to the Washington Post, and my resident bracketologist, the only one I actually trust with this stuff ever. Um, I, I don't get nervous about anything until Patrick tells me I, I should. Patrick, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, doing very well this morning, although looking forward to finally catching up on sleep here the next few days. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Your 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 busy season ends right before mine really starts. Um, I, I go from city to city to city. Um, you 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 go from plugging numbers to plugging numbers to to finally being able to sleep. How did you end up doing uh, on on this year's bracket, Patrick? F- final numbers were sixty six out of sixty eight teams, which is which is only okay. Uh, Forty teams seated correctly. Uh, came on strong with those last two brackets. Uh, first two first two regionals weren't looking very good. Uh, and then in total, 63 out of the 68 teams seated within one line. So uh, I, I have some disagreements with the committee on how they evaluated a few teams, namely Nevada and UCLA. Um, but, but ultimately, I had both of them in, but just in terms of seating. But, but ultimately, I, I, w- I would consider this merely an okay year. How, how would you sort of characterize uh, the field as a whole? As you looked at the numbers, because I, I feel like year after year we hear the old adage, right, that, that you know, oh, this is a this is a weak bubble year, and this is, a, and then I, got, I feel like yesterday or the day before we we got through most of it, and there were really only a couple of situations where we thought, um, you know, there were bid thieves, um, you know, with Rhode Island losing to Davidson, that was one, but I just didn't feel like maybe there was a, as much a, uh, around that as maybe there usually is. How, how would you sort of characterize the field this year? Well, I actually think that the edge of the field, you know, when you're looking at the difference between 36 and 37 on the at-large board, I, I thought that that it was better than most years. Like you were looking at teams and saying, um, you know, in the right circumstances, just about everybody that's in there has a chance to win a couple games. Um, now, there's certainly a couple teams that uh, did not acquit themselves well down the stretch, notably Oklahoma and Arizona State. The numbers overwhelmingly said Oklahoma was going to be in the field, and they were. Uh, and the numbers and the committee's recent history of rewarding high-end wins suggested Arizona State was going to be in the field, and it is. Um, but ultimately, I, I wouldn't trust either one of those teams uh, in any sort of a situation at this point. But beyond those two, you know, I, I think that you look at, at, at the edge of the field and say, there's some, there's some dangerous teams here. You know, I, I think UCLA is underseeded. Uh, I'm really not sure what the committee was looking at in that case. I think St. Bonaventure, as long as the, they get everybody healthy, they you know they were without Courtney Stockard in the A10 semifinals against Davidson, had another injury pop up during that game. They have two great guards in Jalen Adams and Matt Mobley who can cause all sorts of problems, uh, and and I think that that's a team that if if they can win a game, if they can get out of Dayton. Uh, they could create some real havoc. So the edge of the field, I feel like, is better than it's been. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, what what was the other part of the question? I, I, I am I am a little tired. Here. I apologize. <laughs> it's totally okay. Well, no, I, I think also, too, really what, I, what I'm more interested in, too, is that the idea of the quadrants, right? This was the first year that we've, we've used that sort of system. How do you think – do you think it just sort of muddied the water or did it help uh, as you sort of went through your work? Uh, you know, I kind of took the approach that we didn't – we weren't going to know. Like anybody that acted like they knew exactly how it was going to shake out, 
was kind of fooling themselves. Now I, I did point, I did feel like when we were, when I was differentiating, say North Carolina and Duke and who was going to get to go to Charlotte, that you look at Carolina with 14 quadrant one wins and Duke with five. And it was like, well, that, that kind of, that kind of sorts that issue out a little bit. So, uh, you know, I kind of, I probably applied it more earlier in the field than later in the field when you have these teams that would be around 500 or better in that top quadrant. And when you start getting down and, and you're parsing uh, three and four versus three and seven versus two and six, you know, versus three and five, there's, there's, there's not, there's not a whole lot of difference there, but I will say, and the Florida state example is, it rings very true right now. Um, cause I thought that was a team that, that was the biggest variable on the board. I, I thought that it could have been anywhere from a nine seed to out of the field because of its terrible non-conference schedule. It got that nine seed. Uh, and so I, I think that we were reinforced that the number of high end victories and the quadrant system, whether it's a quadrant one or top 50 or whatever, um, the, the committee has really, emphasized over the last few years just the number the sheer quantity of high-end victories in really kind of sorting out how it makes its decisions i think it might actually be a good thing too patrick if i don't know if people really understand how the committee goes about actually seeding the teams Um, because it's not just a situation where okay virginia's the number one overall seed so they get the weakest two the weakest three and the weakest four can can go through the if for me if you will just sort of the, the baseline of how this works? Because um, I don't know if even a lot of you know college basketball fans who who listen to this podcast religiously even really know how this actually works. The idea is is that the committee goes through and painstakingly creates a seed list. So you're com- constantly comparing teams over and over and over again, and so you get to the end of that process and. That's the bulk of the work is, is figuring out how are you going to see to each of these teams. So now you've got you basically break them into lines of four. So the, the one line, the two line, the three line. There's a couple six team lines uh, this year, the 11 and the 16 because of the playing games. So after that, they take the top team and try to pl- place it in a geographically favorable place re- in the regional. And then go all the way through to the end of the line. They're supposed to take the second best of the number two seeds and place them in the same region as the weakest of the one seeds. But after that, it's about trying to create as much geographically favorable opportunities as possible without compromising um, on on potential conference matchups. Like you you wouldn't want to have – say Duke was a two and Carolina was a three, you wouldn't want to put them in the same region. So you, you would you would ship one of them someplace else. And they do that all the way through. Um, and truthfully, you know, it's it's most people would be surprised how little time the committee spends actually filling out the bracket. And just it's just kind of a well plug this team in here and here and here and all of a sudden you have a bracket and you're trying to, you know, you're obviously trying to avoid things like conference matchups too early in the tournament or re- regular season rematches if you can help it. But <clears throat> there really, you know, there really isn't a lot of time spent on, you know, thinking about where teams are slotted in the bracket. That comes at the very end 
And it, you know, from from what I've gathered, it, it's not exactly a part of the process that they spend as much time on as they probably should. And it doesn't guarantee a perfectly even bracket all throughout. Like in a perfect bracket, you would have the one, eight, nine, and sixteenth ranked teams all in the same regional, uh, and that's not something that that happens all that often. As we look at specifically UVA's draw, I think a lot of people were surprised to see both Arizona and Kentucky. I think part of that is name recognition. You know, if you if you substitute out, you know, you, you take the same sort of um, body of work of those two teams and you substitute out the names of those schools and put in other schools' names, people aren't nearly as worried. Um, we obviously know that there's a lot going on around Arizona this season um, with, with Alonzo Trier back as well as, you know, the monster that is DeAndre Aiden. Um, that's a different kind of team together than maybe some of the results they put up this year. When you looked at you at the, at the South region uh, specifically, uh, what did you think of the, of the seating and the draw uh, and, and, and sort of how should Virginia fans be feeling today as they look forward? Well, I thought that both Arizona and Kentucky were, were both underseated by a line. I, I had Kentucky as the weakest four. Um, so to see them as a five is not that big of a deal. I had Arizona as the, as the weakest three. So to see them as a four is not that big of a deal. I was a little surprised that the committee didn't find a way to put Arizona out West. Um, But ultimately I think that might've just been getting bumped for Gonzaga out there. So that clearly means Arizona is not the strongest of the four seeds in any case. um, I was struck by, okay, Creighton's a team that's done most of its best work at home. Kansas state, you know, that was another one of those weak non-conference schedule teams. And they went 10 and 8 in the Big 12 uh, in the regular season, and they went 0 and 6 against the top three teams in the league: uh, Kansas, Texas Tech, West Virginia. Uh, then they turn around in the tournament, they beat TCU and lose to Kansas. So they they basically went what what would that be 11 and 9 in the Big 12 and 0 and 7 against the really good teams. So those two teams, Creighton and Kansas State, seem like perfectly decent 8 9 fodder. Uh, you know, Davidson and Buffalo, the 12 and the 13, they're probably both underseated by a line as well. Uh, and then on the other half of the draw, I, I frankly thought that that was more interesting. You know, Nevada and Texas, Nevada, I thought was overseeded, really didn't accomplish a whole lot. That, not that much more accomplished than the St. Mary's team that flat out missed the tournament altogether. Right. Uh, and, and I think the 6 11 game in that bracket, Miami and Loyola Chicago, could be one of the best games in the first round. Uh, but overall, you know, I think I think the path is pretty clear for Virginia. You know, they they should be they should be able to to get through Charlotte, uh, and then have they'll probably have to deal with Kentucky or Arizona. You know, Arizona at its best is pretty darn good. Um, Kentucky Kentucky's not a team that's been able to sustain a high level of play all season. You know, can they continue what they did in the SEC tournament, playing really well, especially the last couple days against Alabama? and uh, and Tennessee. And in the bottom half of the draw, you know, the possibility of a Virginia-Cincinnati game. <laughs> I mean, like the scenario I'm seeing here is, and, and, we're, and if this is a regular season game, maybe it's not quite to this extreme, but if you're talking about having a Final Four berth at stake with those two teams playing, mm-hmm. it is perfectly plausible that you could find yourself in a 48 possession per team game, just a pure death match with the way both of those teams play defense. And that's not to knock either offense Mm -hmm. because, you know, Virginia, Virginia's offense is quite good. 
Cincinnati has some really excellent pieces. I'm I'm not sure that they will ma- that they would match up particularly well at the offensive end with Virginia, which is you know that's a statement that you could say well nobody matches up well with them. But you know if you're thinking about the ways that you beat Virginia, uh, driving to the basket and, uh, and and hitting threes are, are basically the two ways you can do it. Either shoot really well from the outside or find a way to be quick enough to get to get to the ten. Um, I'm not sure Cincinnati, which is which is a team I think that's more likely to be thriving off of offensive rebounds and and just kind of physical play in the paint. Not sure they would be the perfect matchup there, but I I do think it would just be just a a brawl basically uh, as, as those teams just dig in and and it would it would be a great display of defense I think uh, and it might just be a first to fifty wins. It's funny because as everybody talked about Cincinnati through the the last the latter portion of the conference schedule, I I, I honestly was really hoping that they would be in, in UVA's region because I want to see it because I don't think I've ever seen Virginia play a team uh, whose defense I thought was in in the same sort of stratosphere. I mean, I, I think they've played good teams. They've definitely obviously played a lot of good offensive teams, but to see them sort of play a team not necessarily mirroring them right mm-hmm. to see a team that that does a lot of the same sort of things and does it in similar ways maybe does um you know like you said their maybe their offense is a little bit different um but man i i i really am excited for the potential of that uh in the elite eight um and and certainly i, I think as the bra- as, as the as the um selection sunday sort of drew closer i was under no um delusions that virginia wasn't going to be the one seed in charlotte going to the South region. There seemed to be a lot of conversation about Pittsburgh and it almost felt like to me, and you, 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 you're a good uh, arbiter here. It almost felt like to me, like the the folks in the Carolina media were sort of trying to talk, talk their way into Duke and Carolina, both being in Charlotte and Virginia should just go to Pittsburgh. Um, Is that the way it felt to you from the outside? Well, the, the good thing that we have was the benefit of history in this case, because three years ago, both Charlotte and Pittsburgh were sites. And you had a high-end Duke team, a high-end Virginia team, and a, and a somewhat lesser Carolina team. Certainly certainly a lesser Carolina team compared to uh, what Duke is this year. And, you know, I remember kind of sizing up all the numbers going into Selection Sunday and realizing that as the crow flies, um, Virginia to Pittsburgh, as opposed to Virginia to Charlotte, wasn't unthinkable. Now, you can't drive to Pittsburgh from Charlottesville anywhere near as easily as you can drive to Charlotte. Uh, and so I was kind of curious how that would, that would work out. And ultimately Virginia went to Charlotte that year. Uh, and Carolina was actually shipped down to Jacksonville, uh, that season that the anchor teams in Pittsburgh, uh, turned out to be Villanova and Notre Dame. In any case, I thought if that was what happened, then there's no reason to believe that's not what was going to happen now. Uh, that Virginia being, closest to Charlotte in terms of a drive uh, was going to end up down there almost for sure. And then you would see Duke or Carolina getting shipped probably to Pittsburgh. Now I I would point out that, you know, the relatively recent history of Duke playing tournament games in Carolina is, is pretty spotty. And they lost to Lehigh in Greensboro in 2012. They lost to Mercer in Raleigh in 2014. If you extend this just a little bit, if you go down in, into the Carolinas, you know they lost to South Carolina in Greenville in the second round last year. Maybe maybe going away isn't isn't the worst thing in the world for this Duke team. Go up to Pittsburgh, 
you know, th- there's not exactly huge fan bases that will be present. You know, Villanova will bring their share of fans uh, across the state. But you look at the teams that are that are in that sub-regional, uh, you're talking about Iona, Rhode Island, Oklahoma, Virginia Tech will actually probably have a fair number of folks there, Alabama, and then the LIU-Brooklyn-Radford winner. You know, may- maybe that's not the worst place in the world for Duke to be this week. Last question on the on the bracket as a whole before we dig in a little bit more. Um, the play-in games. Um, I, I guess maybe this is my own error here, but I I always assumed that the that the that maybe incorrectly that the one seed should get a winner of a play-in game between two crappy teams. But that's not the way that the play-in game really is situated. It's two elevens, you know, two elevens, and then two sixteens and two sixteens. It was the was the geographical aspect of Charlotte. Part of the reason why um, that the that the that the two uh, play in sixteen games, one went to the east and one went to the west. I think you know, and I was thinking about this last night as well. I think the geographic element of who the sixteens were, um, because at the end of the day, you have a you have a a flight from Dayton to Charlotte or a flight from Dayton to Nashville. Okay, Nashville's closer, but it's not like it's. You're spending an extra half hour, forty five minutes in the air, or whatever. That's not the end of the. That's not the end of the of the world. I think the the, the idea here was you have UMBC who you can send to Charlotte. It's a, you know, I'm trying to think. I'm actually like fifteen minutes from UMBC, so mileage wise, it's probably something in the four hundred four hundred and fifty mile range. You know, not a not a hard flight. Uh, just get them down there, and then. You know, that kind of left open uh, the Nashville spot for Central and Texas Southern. So, you know, I was a little surprised. I had kind of assumed this year that you would see a play-in winner going to Charlotte to play Virginia. Uh, But, you know, just chalk that up to the committee does what the committee does. Because I looked at it and I thought, I could see both ways. I could see from Virginia's point of view, it's actually better for them to know who they're playing, right? Yeah, so they can scout, they can can do their thing. But then I looked at it and think, well, there's no reason that LIU, Brooklyn, uh, and Radford couldn't play, um, you know, on uh, on on Tuesday, um, and then the winner goes down to Charlotte. Especially, you know, if you think about Radford, UVA could be the first round game. I, I thought, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I just thought that there's no reason between the East and the and the South that you couldn't flip the 16 seeds, right? I'm and, I'm pretty yeah I'm pretty sure. Uh, now, one thing here that's kind of interesting is that. Both Radford and LIU Brooklyn had um, they had wrapped up their conference tournaments earlier than both Texas Southern and, and NC Central, uh, so there might might have been a matter of giving them an extra day in there too. Right. Uh, the, the 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 NC Central Texas Southern matchup is actually really interesting, um, just kind of with a little you know sort of bracket insider type stuff here. Since when the when the field expanded to sixty five in two thousand one, there was a really big stink kind of created stinks not the right word but a really a push you know to make sure that because the MEAC and the SWAC two two conferences uh that are composed of historically black colleges and universities uh and and are traditionally at or near the bottom in conference RPI uh that they didn't get shafted into having both of their teams sent into this play-in round um every year or, or a lot of years. And so this is the first time in, in the 18 years of 
the uh, the bracket expansion from 64 to 65 and now 68, <coughs> excuse me, that both of them are playing in a playing game. Um, and there were certainly some concerns brought up about that last night. But the interesting thing to me is if you're going to have that situation, and, and the reason you do it this year is Texas Southern is under 500. Now, some of that was a function of playing their typical murderer's row non-conference schedule, but they're under 500. It, it would have been hard to have justified a 15 and 19 team not going to Dayton. And, and NC Central had an RPI, you know, somewhere around 280 or so, 279 going into, into Sunday. So you would have had a hard time justifying that too, keeping them out of date. But by playing each other, uh, not only does it guarantee uh, at least one of those two teams being in the, uh, in the, in the main 64-team field, every NCAA tournament victory gives the conference that earns it a, 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 a unit. And the unit is worth, over a six-year span, about $1.6 million. So one of those leagues is guaranteed now to take home a fair bit of money over the next six years, which is, you know, while, while it would be better, in a perfect world, you're just sending a bunch of at-larges to Dayton and, and playing it that way. Right. Um, but as things stand... You know, that's not a terrible consolation prize. Yeah, I kind of think, I, I was thinking about this the other day, how much fun would it be if you put Notre Dame and like teams that basically weren't in, like if you essentially took the first four out and made those the playing games and then just let the 16s be the 16s, right? Let, let, the, let the bad teams be who, are, who, are, who, who might come from smaller conferences, let them get their unit, right? And then put these other conference, these big conference teams who otherwise wouldn't be in the tournament, let them duke it out. Um, I, I kind of thought that would be a, a, an interesting way to use Dayton. Um, coincidentally, be, I, I didn't just got, get, the, in my opinion, the best bracket guy um, that I could talk to. I also have um, the, probably the only only person I know who has seen UMBC play multiple times. Did you, did you tell me seven? Was it seven? Seven times. So, so Patrick has seen UMBC seven times. I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one's really easy. Uh, how confident are you that UVA is going to win? Uh, and then to get, just give me some, some info on, on uh, UMBC. Uh, as a whole. Yeah, the, the, it, this is not the time. This is not the time, and this is not the team from Virginia's perspective that's going to end the uh, you know one over sixteen period of dominance. Uh, you know, UMBC's had a great season, and, and I want to I want to give Ryan Odom, the head coach there. He's a former Virginia Tech assistant, but you would probably remember him, or I have a connection. Maybe a little more. He's the son of Dave Odom, the right. longtime Wake Forest and South Carolina coach, and also a, a Virginia right. assistant under Terry Holland. Um, he took over a program uh, last season that had suffered through seven consecutive twenty-loss seasons. I mean, I mean, think about this. Th- this decade, UMBC had gone four and twenty-six, five and twenty-five, four and twenty-six, eight and twenty-three, nine and twenty-one, four and twenty-six. Seven and twenty-five, and in year one they win twenty games and, and go to the CIT semifinals. In year two, you know they they win twenty-four games, which matches a school record, and they get their first NCAA tournament berth since two thousand eight by winning at Vermont, which frankly I thought was extremely unlikely. I saw them lose at home to Vermont by twenty-eight and figured postseason situation going up there, not not a good not a good deal. Um, but credit to them for, for really having done a nice job uh, of having, you know, having a, a superb turnaround. Now, some of that is a function of playing smarter. Some of that is a function of having a really fun 
offensive philosophy and being able to create a good backcourt in a hurry. Um, you look at them, they, they take a fair number of threes. They actually rank 13th in the country in the percentage of their points coming from three-pointers. And they have, like I said, two really good guards. Jarius Lyles, who hit the game winner against Vermont in the America East final, is a scoring machine with a great backstory. He began his career at VCU, played there a year, didn't play a whole ton, then transferred to Robert Morris, where he spent a semester, and said, this isn't for me. And so he transfers to UMBC, went to high school in the D.C. area at DeMatha, so basically a, a trip back home. And he has become one of the most notable players in UMBC's program history. Uh, the other guy that's really neat and fun to watch on that team is a 5'8 uh, point guard named K.J. Mora, who, who really just has excellent control of things. I'm not sure that a guy that size is going to hold up particularly well against Virginia's defense. Um, but he's a guy that makes a lot of really good decisions. And so between him and Lyles playing off of each other, uh, they certainly have the pieces to at least make some threes and make things interesting um, as, as they head into this first round game. All right, last, last question for you, Patrick. I, I'm curious, uh, as somebody who, who, who consumes as much college basketball information as anybody I probably know, how much did you hate the selection show? Did you possibly even like the selection show? Should folks have been outraged about the selection show? Is outrage about the selection show just a thing we do now? Um, what did you think uh, of the changes yesterday? You know, some, it, it struck me as, as, a, as something a TV executive decided to do just to show how smart they were. And, you know, there's really not a whole lot of point to doing what they did. At the end of the day, it probably got done maybe five minutes longer, five to ten minutes longer than what it originally was or what it had traditionally been. Um, but, you know, doing it with a live studio audience just seemed kind of silly. Um, but, you know, again, I keep coming back to the idea with this, like so many other things, that I'm not the target audience for this. So I should probably just kind of roll my eyes at it and move on. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, in particular, you know, the, the reveal, the reveal of the teams prior to showing the bracket. I mean, I, I guess one of the nice things it did, it meant that like players and coaches from like St. Mary's and Southern Cal and some other places could just go and get started on, you know, get, you know, whatever else they wanted to do with their day. Uh, a little bit earlier, but you know, I, I think there's, I think it was more fun just from the sense of, you know, trying to figure out as each bracket got unveiled, well, who's still sitting out there? Uh, and that sort of question, uh, those sorts of questions. So uh, I hope they go back to something else, but chances are somebody will think it was a smashing success. So who yeah, knows? I feel like, you know, social media dragged them pretty, pretty hard, especially because it started off with the audio sync issue, which I mean, I didn't even, I mean, my train was delayed, so I didn't even get to watch it. But what the, the, it strikes me, it doesn't make sense is if you, if you're, if you're a TV person and you do want to pull in the casual fan, um, a selection show essentially comes down to who got in and who got out. So it makes sense that somebody thought, you know, we're just going to do that uh, off the bat. But also, doesn't that sort of kill the show if that's the one? If the one sort of um, compelling piece that you have is who gets in and who gets out, if you do the brackets the right way, um, you could potentially save all of that stuff and, and sprinkle it throughout, as opposed to you know you know shooting your wad in the first forty you know 
well, I guess it was the first, like, what, 10 minutes or so? It was the first 15 minutes. Okay. It was so done, it wasn't that, like that they part just read was them. done by 6.15. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense to me that the best way to do it would be go bracket by bracket. You, you, you say who your one seeds are because pretty much everybody knows that. And you, and you give uh, a little bit of the bracket at each time. You, you could, I would even understand if they said, you know, instead of doing a bracket, you know, region by region, we're going to go, like, almost like sub-region by sub-region. And they could save the ones – that had the, you know what I mean? Like they could, yeah, they yeah. Could strategically so, so, do I mean, it. You could, you could, and you could even say, let's look at the matchups for the ones versus sixteens, and then the twos versus fifteens, yes. and, and just kind of, yeah. kind of do it that way, and build yourself, you know, basically go through about the thirteen or twelve line, and then work your way from the eight nine line back out. Yep. I mean, that that could possibly work, and I mean, that would I think it, be compelling throughout. But the problem is, is that ultimately this isn't a show for regular people. Because regular people don't care. <laughs> this is ultimately a show for us. And they keep messing it up. Always makes me laugh. It's like they keep trying to make the tent bigger, but all they're doing is poking holes in the tent. Um, which, you know, I get that they want to have eyeballs. But, you know, sometimes you're just not going to make something compelling. Um, and, and ratings can't – ratings aren't going to go up because you try to bring more people in. Ratings are only going to go up because, you know, maybe you have some actual people who know college basketball. That's my other thing is that – you know, we could, you couldn't get a steady diet of you know people who knew the teams that could actually tell compelling stories, as opposed to you know um, NBA guys who d- have not watched college basketball. Like that's my yeah, and that, and that, and that's the other the other factor that has been you know that I'm pretty sure this contract started in in 2011 or or the the current setup started in 2011 with with CBS and Turner. Um, you know, just the 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 fact that you are watching. You know, if you're watching the halftime shows, which I I purposely try not to, but you've got guys that that don't watch college basketball the whole time. I mean, that's okay. Like, I don't watch the NBA pretty much ever, but nobody's ever going to ask me what I think about it. Nobody's bringing you uh, on podcasts to talk about what's what's wrong with the Lakers, right? <laughs> no, nobody is asking that. Thank goodness, and I I couldn't give you an answer. You know, I would I would say it's probably because Kobe retired. Or something. <laughs> that that does seem to hurt. Um, so who do you, who do you have win it all? Uh, Patrick, not to put you on the spot, but who, who do you have? I hadn't even—I really haven't thought about it uh, a whole ton. But if I had to—if I had to pick somebody out, you know, I—I I really like Purdue, um, and I think that even though they're, they're, they've got a little bit of depth issues, but the tournament has all these long timeouts. Maybe not ACC tournament long, which was just obnoxious over <laughs> the weekend. <laughs> um, it felt like you could sit there and read War and Peace during one of the during the under twelve. Um, but I, I, I've really liked Purdue all season. You know, they, 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 they picked up a few losses late, uh, but they've got a great guard in Carson Edwards. They've got good bigs. They can play against all sorts of different kind of teams. Um, you, you do kind of question watching them in that big 10 final. It was not the, it was not the most impressive strategic imp- uh, uh, showing. So, you know, maybe that's not the greatest pick, but. I do think that that's a really high floor team. Good deal. Well, Patrick, uh, another year in the books. Uh, another year where I'm the first one to say, "Hey, can, can you come on my podcast?" So I'm, I'm, you you were the first. You were the first on. So I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at uh, getting my my ducks in a row. Uh, but again, man, really appreciate the time. I, like you said, I know this is uh, this is your busy season, and this is obviously a time for you to be um, aching for sleep. So I appreciate you taking a few minutes and uh, and and enlightening. Uh, the listeners, but uh, Patrick Stevens, uh, contributor to Washington Post. Thanks for your time. Uh, again, thanks to everybody out there for continuing to support the show. We'll be back with a, another full episode uh, in a couple days. So 
Uh, for my buddy Patrick, I'm Brad Franklin, publisher of CatsCorner.com. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you soon.